Jesus did his part so that you are worthy. And that's what I'm going to show you according to the word of God tonight. You are worthy. So would you go ahead and open your Bible to John chapter 5. Oh, I thank you, Father. I am just, Father, I just speak over this message right now, over this word, over this truth that our identity in you is one of acceptance, one of justification. That means that we are acquitted. And because we've been acquitted of all sin, we are worthy. We are in a position of worthiness, of righteousness. Father, I thank you that this truth has the potential to change our lives. When we accept your gift, when we simply believe it and accept it and receive all of the benefits that you have for us. So I thank you, Father, that this word is powerful. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'm going to start with is I'm going to share several biblical accounts. This was a, this was a snapshot of a current day healing. But I'm going to share several biblical accounts that reveal the heart of God and show you and show me that we are worthy, that it's a state of being. It's not a state of doing. It's not we have to do this, do this, do this, and then we become worthy. It is our position. It is a state of being. So the first scripture that I want to share is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. This story, this biblical account, this true, it's not a, a parable. This is an account. This happened when Jesus was walking on this earth. Reminds me a lot of Chris Carlson's account. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gates pool, which is in, call, in Hebrew called Bethesda, having five porches. And in these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time to the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Okay, I'm going to stop for just a sec. He had this infirmity. The definition of infirmity is a weakness of the body or soul. So it could have been a combination, but it could be a soul issue, which is something that's in your, in your mind or your will or your emotions. It could have been in his body or it could have been both. And it had taken, it had been in his life for 38 years. The video testimony that we saw of Chris, she had had that trigeminal neuralgia for 15 years. We've talked to her, Kent and I, quite a bit. She had to quit her job as an engineer. She was completely debilitated with this intense, intense pain. This man was an invalid. For 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Did he say yes? When Jesus said, do you want to be made well? Did he say yes? No. 
started to say, but, but nobody helps me to get in. And the first person that gets in the pool is the one that's healed by the Spirit of God. Or I don't know exactly how that, all thing, that whole thing worked. But he knew he needed a man. He didn't realize who Jesus was. Chris Carlson didn't know that Jesus heals today. She didn't realize the fullness of the truth. Next week, Tom is going to be sharing to help us to understand the fullness of the truth in what I call the great exchange, the fall of man and what was lost, how our dominion was lost, and the redemption of Christ when it was regained, full, above and beyond what we ever lost. Chris didn't know all that. Chris didn't know. And when she even came to that healing meeting, she came very skeptical. Even at the time of prayer, she told her husband, okay, it's time to go home. And he said, what? We have to get prayer. And then she went up to for prayer and she told Marlene, I don't believe in this whole healing thing. And Marlene said, that's okay. I can believe for you. So here's this man who didn't even know Jesus. And then Jesus didn't question, didn't argue, didn't say, well, you better learn. This is what Jesus said. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well. He took up his bed and walked. That day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was, called, who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And the man answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Man didn't even know who Jesus was. He didn't know his name. He couldn't even point him out. He disappeared in the crowd. It's not like he knew that Jesus was the healer and he was going for healing. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. And that word made well is sozo. You have been saved, healed, delivered. Then he said, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. He didn't tell him that at the beginning of the story, at the beginning of the account. He didn't say, Sin no more and, and, and we'll go to God and see if he'll heal you. That's not what he said. He immediately healed this man. The end of the account, he talks about the sin issue. But what you, we've come to know and experience ourselves is that when you come to know Jesus, when you come into relationship with Jesus, the sin no more issue ha- happens automatically. And it's not that we never miss it, but there's something changes in your whole um, uh, proximity to, to the Lord and, and the way that, that it affects your life. My pastor has often said, and I've shared this several times, but it's good. He said, we don't have a sin problem. We have a proximity problem. When you come close to God, the sin problem goes away. So that's what happened with this man. He had an encounter. He was healed. He wasn't in a position of being all fixed, being worthy being, you know, a, a, a strong, holy man of God with tons of faith and a good man. That's not who he was. Jesus healed him. One thing you're going to hear me say throughout this teaching 
is that Jesus, when he walked on this earth, was a bridge between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant, and we're going to talk more about the, what that was and, and our, our, where, where people, where humankind was in relation to God in the old covenant. The new covenant was established after Jesus died, after he paid for our redemption with his blood. But while Jesus actually walked on this earth, it was a bridge. Actually, it was old covenant. But Jesus was a bridge between the old and the new. And as you hear these accounts, you're going to see how time and time again, Jesus showed us, pointed us towards the new covenant of grace. He was showing us through his action. He was revealing the heart of the Father and what the Father wanted, wanted and knew was coming through Jesus. The next account I want to share is in Matthew chapter 8. So turn there. This is another one that involves healing. Matthew 8. This is the account of this, uh, where Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And before I read it, I want to tell you a little bit about a centurion. A centurion was a Roman soldier, an officer, an officer in the Roman army, commanding at least 100 soldiers under him. Now, the Roman army was considered the enemy of the nation of Israel. So the centurion, because he was Roman and because he was an enemy of Israel, was not in a position to go to Jesus. They were enemies because of his culture, because of who he had been born, and because he was a Roman centurion. But look at what happened. Verse 8, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. The centurion, I'm going to stop there for just a sec. The centurion had to have known the reputation of Jesus because he wanted his servant healed. He cared. This centurion had to have a heart of compassion. He saw Jesus as the healer. He saw Jesus heal. He saw his reputation. The servant, it describes the problem. It says he was paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. That refers to intense pain. But Jesus immediately said, okay, I'll come and heal him. He didn't say, well, he's not Jewish. He didn't say he's not one of the covenant people. He just said, okay, I'll come and heal him. But the servant answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. And again, it's because of the difference between the Roman culture and the Jewish culture. But he says, only speak a word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, not even in, with my people, not even with the covenant people, I've not seen such great faith. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer, outer darkness. Just because you were born in, uh, uh, in Judaism or in whatever religion doesn't mean you're automatically going to receive salvation. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way. And as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Again, this servant and the centurion weren't in a position in the natural to deserve healing. But Jesus healed. He's revealing the heart of the Father. He's pointing to the coming new covenant. Another healing. Chris Carlson, the man at the pool of Bethesda, the centurion servant. And I know there are a lot more in the Bible if we search. But what I want to share with you now, I'm going to show you two more scriptures that talk about worthiness. And then we're going to talk about the old covenant, new covenant. So turn to John chapter 8. We're going through these kind of quickly today. I just want to give you a snapshot from the word of God of this truth. You are worthy. John chapter 8, starting with verse 2. This is the account of the woman caught in adultery. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple. And the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Do you think that's sin? Yep. Now Moses in the law commanded us that we such should be stoned. So here are the scribes and the Pharisees who are the leaders of the law, the leaders of the religious law. And they come to Jesus with the law, and they say, according to the law, which was the old covenant, that was what was in place when Jesus was born and lived his 33 years. He said, the the people said, according to the law, she should be stoned. What do you say? And we all know the story, but let's go ahead and read it. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he had not heard. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote in the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The ending of that account sounds a lot like the first one I read about the man at the pool of Bethesda. After the whole thing was over, After she had been set free from the death sentence, she had been acquitted, she had been set free. And then, he said, go and sin no more. I want to talk about a couple of um, uh, pieces of this account that I think will just point you to the 
the, a, a deeper knowledge of the love of God and, and our position in him now. Near the end of the scripture, verse 10, Jesus asks her, where are those accusers of yours? That word accusers in the Greek is kategoros. It is a word that was given to Satan. It was a word that meant Satan. And we know in uh, Revelation, later on in the Bible, it calls, it calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. That term accuser is, um, can be likened to a prosecutor. Think of a prosecuting attorney and a defense attorney. A prosecuting attorney works for the government to uphold the letter of the law. Okay? Think about Satan. Think about the enemy. Think about this instance, this, this adulteress, this instance. Works for the government or religion to uphold the letter of the law. A prosecuting attorney never talks about the, the person's good points. They show, rather, they just show evidence of their failure. And they attempt to prosecute them for those failures. This is all what the enemy does. He points out your failures. He points out your weaknesses. And he attempts to make you pay the price for all of the stuff you've done wrong. That's the enemy. That's the accuser. That's the old covenant, but the new covenant, Jesus. Jesus is a picture right now. Remember, he's a bridge between the old and the new. He's pointing us to the new covenant. He's pointing us to the truth that's coming, that he's going to uh, activate through his death and resurrection. And he says, he says, um, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. A defense attorney. We talked about the prosecuting attorney and what their job is. But a defense attorney is one who represents the defendant. That's what Jesus does. Jesus set that adulteress free of the charge. She was acquitted. She was declared worthy, even though she had sinned. She was set free. The prosecuting, the accuser said, you're unworthy. You are not worthy. You have to pay the price because you're unworthy. But Jesus said, no, I don't condemn you. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. He acquitted her. He placed her in a place of of worthiness, even though she had sinned. The next account, the last account, before I, I... go into the next major point of this teaching is in Matthew chapter 9. So turn there. Matthew 9. This is the Gospel of Matthew. And this is the account of Matthew. He's writing about himself. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew at the tax office. Before I go on, I want to talk about that position of being a tax collector. In the days when Jesus was on the earth, the tax collectors were despised by the Jews. They were of the Jewish culture, but they had sold out 
to the Roman government, and they collected taxes for the government. But they were called tax farmers because they were allowed to collect more than the government needed or, or expected. So they extorted money from their own people for the for a purpose of getting rich themselves. They were hated. They were lumped together with the same group as harlots, Gentiles, and sinners. They were excluded from the people of God. Even though they were Jewish, even though they were part of the culture, they were excluded. Now let me read the rest of this account. I'm going to start again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. He didn't exclude him. Look at what he said. He said to him, follow me. Everybody else in that culture hated the tax collectors. They excluded them. They, they wouldn't communicate. They wouldn't befriend them. Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew did. And we know that Matthew became one of the 12 apostles, right? Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. Oops, I think I skipped something. No, I didn't. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So he's eating. He's at at the house. They're all together. They're eating together. Many tax collectors, many sinners. And then the Pharisees came. (laughs) The Pharisees saw it. They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners into repentance. So here's Jesus. He didn't exclude Matthew. He included Matthew. He accepted Matthew. Not only Matthew. But I could go through the whole list of disciples, apostles, and tell you all of their yuck. He had a whole bunch of really sinful people that he called to be his apostles, to be on the inner circle with him, to birth the new church after he left. This scripture says he didn't come to call the the righteous, but the sinners. And then it says, go and learn what this means. I... Desire mercy, not sacrifice. So I want to talk about that for a sec. The word sacrifice. In the Old Covenant, they used what was called the sacrificial system. We're going to go more into that in a sec. In the Old Testament system of law, the sacrificial system, the emphasis was on the power of sin and exclusion. Write that down on your paper. The Old Testament system of sacrifice was based on the power of sin and exclusion that was sacrifice jesus said i didn't come he says i desire mercy not sacrifice he desires mercy 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 is part of the new testament system of grace mercy means we do not get what we deserve And the emphasis is on the power of God's love and acceptance. Big difference. Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
mercy. The emphasis is on the power of God's love and acceptance. And that's what he was showing them by calling Matthew, by having dinner with the tax collectors and the, and the sinners. He was pointing them to the heart of the Father. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, not the power of sin and exclusion. He didn't exclude Matthew like everybody else did that was Jewish. He included him. So the title of this teaching is You Are Worthy. Chris Carlson was worthy of healing. Matthew was worthy of being called to be an apostle. Why? I was healed. I was a sinner. I was barely saved. I didn't know the word. God saw me worthy, worth dying for. I was someone worth dying for. And so are you. But the question is why? Why are you worthy? We've all missed it a lot. We could probably all tell stories that would make you cringe. (laughs) Kathy was at the cottage with us this last weekend. She heard some stories that, hmm. I heard some about her, too, though. Yeah, we are worthy. I want to show you two things. The first one, I'm going to talk about the word atonement. Why are we worthy? Under the old covenant, the blood of animals atoned for sin. That word atone is used 69 times in the Old Testament, and it means to cover It means to cover over, not take away, but cover over. In the Old Covenant, people were separated from God because of sin. God cannot be with sin. He cannot be in relationship with mankind if we have sin. So there was separation Even with the covering over, even with the atonement of the sacrificial system, there was a division. There was a separation. Um, The the tangible evidence of that was the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies place. And nobody could go into the most holy of holies place where the presence of God was because they weren't worthy. Once a year, the highest high priest could go into that place after he had gone through this huge purification process. And then, if he didn't do things just right, he would die. Nobody else could go. When Jesus was crucified, when he died, the curtain, the veil, was supernaturally torn from heaven to earth. That was a symbol, that was a sign that that division was no longer there. That there was no longer a need for a a divider, a dividing curtain, a place where we couldn't be close to the presence of God or we would die. So the Old Testament system was one of atonement. That word atonement is only used once in the New Testament. And I'm going to read it to you right now. It's in Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. I'm reading from the King James Version. 
For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The word saved is sozo. Saved, healed, delivered. And not only that, not only sozo, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now that word atonement is in Greek. And the other one, the 69 from the Old Testament, were in Hebrew. The word actually means something very different. The Old Testament word that is translated atonement in our English language means to cover over. But the Greek word that's only used once, atonement, means reconciliation. There's a big difference between in the way that sins were taken care of in the Old Covenant versus the New. In the Old Covenant, they were covered over and there was still separation between us and God. But under the New Covenant, the blood of Jesus that was shed for us completely conquered sin. When a person is born again, that means when you accept Jesus as your Savior, when you accept the sacrifice that he died for, sin is eliminated. It's not just covered. It's eliminated. It's remitted. It's canceled out just as if you had never done it. It only happened once. It only needed to happen once. In the Old Testament, they had to sacrifice animals time and time and time again. But Jesus' sacrifice only needed to take place once, once for all. And everyone who accepts that sacrifice is now completely cleansed. And that is why we're worthy. It's not because of what we've done. It's because of what Jesus has done. Now, here's the really good part. In the Old Covenant, there was separation. Sin separated us from the presence of God. But because sin has been eliminated, it's no longer there. Now, get this, sin has been separated from us so that we can be reconciled to God. And that's what the word atonement means in the Greek. Reconciled or reconciliation. Sin has been separated so that we can be reconciled. That's why you are worthy. Say that. I am worthy. You are worthy because of the blood that Jesus shed. Look with me at Romans chapter 5, verse 16. I'm going to give you two more scriptures that say you are worthy. And believe me, there are a lot of them. Romans chapter 5. I haven't really talked with Tom about exactly what he's teaching, but I bet you chapter 5 is in there. <laughs> Probably going to read a lot more than one verse next week. Nor is the free gift at all to be compared to the effect of that one man's sin. For the sentence following the trespass of one man brought condemnation. Whereas the free gift following many transgressions brings justification, an act of righteousness. So this, this one verse talks about um, the old covenant and um, the fall of man, the one sin of Adam. 
and how with the fall of man, condemnation took place, which basically means we were separated from God because of the sin issue that was, that, that was on us. But with the, the, the new man, the free gift, the free gift, and that is the gift that Jesus gave us through his death, following many transgressions, because there were a whole bunch of sins, <laughs> there still are, sin of entire humanity from all time, all that sin, this free gift took care of, and it brings justification. So I want to talk about those two words. Condem- they're both judicial terms. They're both judicial terms. The first one is a damnatory sentence, condemnation, damnatory sentence. And write down the word unworthiness next to it, because that's the position or the state of being that we all were. There's no way you could be good enough. No way. You guys know that. We've all missed it. If you've missed it once, there's no way that you are worthy. You were unworthy, and that's in that covenant. But justification is a favorable judgment, a good judgment. In justification, we are acquitted. We are declared acceptable. We are freed of the charge, all charges. We are freed, just like the woman caught in adultery. Remember, Jesus was the bridge between the Old and the New Covenant. Just like he acquitted her and didn't condemn her, that's the position we're in. We're accepted, we're acquitted, we're freed from all charges. We are worthy. Worthiness was a result of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's the source of our worthiness. I know this is on your paper, but it's so good I want to read it. We are righteous in spite of our sin. Righteousness is not right doing, but it is right standing before God because of your right believing. All we have to do is believe in Jesus. Our part is to say, Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died and rose from the dead. I believe that you came to free me from sin and all of the effects of sin. And when we, in our heart, believe it, truly in our heart we believe it and speak it with our mouth, we become righteous. It doesn't have to do with our behavior. It has to do with believing So righteousness is not right doing. It is right standing or right being. I like to say it's a state of being, not a state of doing. And it comes about as we believe in Jesus. It's very simple. I became righteous on February 19th, 2002. That's the day I received Jesus as my Savior. And I am righteous today. I am righteous then, now, and forever. Amen. Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. You are worthy. There is therefore now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That's good news. There's no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus and he's in you. There's none. None. We've been freed. We've been taken out of one law and put in the other. But the new one is is good. It's the law of the spirit of life, not the law of sin and death. We've been freed. We've been delivered from one and placed in the other. The power of the love of God, that's New Testament grace, has freed us from the power of sin. That's Old Testament law. The power of the love of God. As we, the the scripture says, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly where, it's in Romans, it says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. The love of God leads us to that place. The love of God, the power of God's love has freed us from the power of sin. Okay. I'm going to share with you four scriptures about being, about another part of your identity. And that is that you are a son or a daughter of God. And you are so loved. Oh, I wish I could get that concept, that truth, to go right into your heart and, and just explode. You are so loved by God. You are his son or his daughter. And I'm going to share four scriptures that just ooze with his love. I just want you to just, I, I just pray, Father God, that your love just goes through these scriptures in such a way that we've, we receive it like we've never received it before. Okay. Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. For the spirit which you have now received is not a spirit of slavery to put you once more in bondage to fear. Now, in that first part of the scripture, you can put anything you want in there that has to do with the law. In bondage to unworthiness, in bondage to sickness, in bondage to uh, feeling like you're an orphan instead of a son of God. Or a daughter of God. We've been freed. We're no longer in bondage. We are no longer in a spirit of slavery. And here's the comma. But, whenever there's a but, you know that God's going to tell you what you are. That's not what you are. This is what you are. You have received the spirit of adoption. The spirit producing sonship. In which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself thus testifies together with our own spirit, assuring us that we are the children of God. You're no longer under that bondage thing. But you might feel like you are. It might look like you are in the world. What I'm trying to show you with all my heart is that that's your, the, the true identity comes after the but, after the comma. Not the bondage. You've been freed from that. You are now the son or the daughter of God. And then it goes on and it says, so you can cry out, Abba, Father, Father. That word Abba is the term that Jesus used when he prayed to the Father. I want to read from my notes because I want to make sure I tell you this. 
in the deepness that it is. It expresses, that word Abba, that name Abba, expresses a depth of intimacy, deep emotion, earnestness, warmth, and confidence. And I wrote, this is from my heart, this love is more than unconditional love. It's more. We often use that word that that God has unconditional love for us or we have unconditional love for our children. No matter what they do, we still love them. And that's good. But God's is more. It is warm. It It is intense. He so desires to satisfy his love for us. He just wants to... Bless us and bless us and heal us and take care of us and lead us and guide us and protect us and do everything. He so hungers, God so hungers to satisfy His intense love for us. It's more than just unconditional. And this scripture says, because we're the son or the daughter of God, just like Jesus, called out to his father and called him Abba. He says, that's what we can do. That term Abba, the nearest, the closest words we have in our English language to Abba are Daddy or Papa. Think of that. When you talk to God, when you talk to Father God, calling him Daddy or Papa. It's just so intimate so close. It's so sweet. Many of you know my stories about my grandson because I just talk about him all the time. But that's what he calls my son. He calls him Papa. It just When he first started doing it, I thought, kind of weird because it sounds like a grandpa <laughs> instead of a daddy. But now that I'm, you know, I've heard that for all these, for this time, it just, just, I just love it when I hear my little bitty baby calling his daddy Papa, I know what this scripture says. And the way that my little Colton looks up to his daddy and just loves him so much. <laughs> Multiply that a hundred, 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 hundreds of times. And that's how much our Father God loves us and, and our relationship with Father God. Abba, Daddy, Papa. The next scripture that talks about our sonship is Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Galatians chapter 4. And this is what it says. But when the proper time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born subject to the regulations of the law, to purchase the freedom to ransom, to redeem, to atone for those who were subject to the law, that we might be adopted and have sonship conferred upon us to be recognized as God's sons. And because you really are his sons, God has sent the Holy Spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, a bondservant, but a son. 
And if a son, then it follows that you are an heir by the aid of God through Christ. We are the heir of God. We have his inheritance. And it's a good one. It includes healing. It includes all the blessings from heaven. And I know there's a lot. (laughs) It includes the love of God. It includes so much. God loved us so much, so very much, that he sent Jesus to purchase our freedom so that we could be sons, so that we could be called sons, chosen, accepted. 1 John 3, verse 1. See what an incredible quality of love the Father has given us, shown and bestowed on us. That we should be permitted to be named and called and counted the children of God. And so we are. The reason that the world does not recognize, acknowledge us, is because it doesn't recognize and acknowledge him. We are the children of God. Now others may think we're nuts. They may not acknowledge it. They may not agree with us. But it's probably because they don't acknowledge and agree with the truth. Of God the Father. But the love of God, the incredible quality of the love of God has been poured out on us by the gift of being his children. That could not have happened without Jesus ransoming us and acquitting us. And the fourth one that I want to read before I close with my last thought is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation for this scripture. Hmm. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Love that part. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. So the whole gist of this session is that Jesus made the way for us to be worthy because of the love of God. The love that was so rich that God wanted us to be reconciled to him, to be his children. You know, this reminds me, this scripture reminds me of, of, I mentioned it last week, but a parent who isn't able to have their own child for whatever reason, and so they choose to adopt. And they plan it, and they prepare, and they're so excited, and they, they do everything. They, they, they very often have to put aside a lot of money or have a lot of money ready, because it takes a lot to adopt. Many times they go to, if it's a foreign child, they go to the country. They make a couple trips to the foreign country. They adopt the child. They bring them home, and they, they prepare everything. That's what God did. He decided in advance to adopt us. To bring us to himself. He wanted to do it. It gave him great pleasure. We are his children. We are are his accepted, chosen children. That is your identity in Christ. And you are worthy because of what Jesus did for us. So the last question I have for you to think about. Did Jesus die for you? In vain, 
That's your choice to make. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I read that last week. We were talking about we are in Christ. We're crucified in him. We're resurrected to new life in him, and that's all great. But look at what the next verse says. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul says, I don't set aside the grace of God, this gift, this gift that Jesus gave us. Because if righteousness comes through the law, by doing everything right, then Jesus died in vain. Let me, let me restate that. If you claim the lie that you're not worthy because of your behaviors, because of your actions, because of whatever, and you think you have to do everything just right in order to deserve healing or anything else in the word, then you are nullifying all of the work that Jesus did for us, and he died in vain. There are two parts of this that I underlined. The first one is the grace of God. The grace of God, because of the grace of God, all punishment that we deserved was upon Jesus. It was paid for. Everything that we deserved for the sin that we committed was paid for, but it wasn't paid for by us. It was paid for by Jesus. Payment was made in full. It's a free gift. If we choose to continue to live through the law, it means that we're living in a state of sin consciousness, in a state of unworthiness, instead of a state of righteousness, which is what we are if we're a born-again child of God. If we're in a state of sin consciousness and we're striving to live perfectly without believing and receiving the benefit of grace, then Jesus died in vain. If we claim the lie of unworthiness, if we are in an identity, if we have bought the lie, the wrong identity, that we're unworthy, when Jesus died for us, crazy in love with us, and choosing death so that we could live, then he died in vain. I don't know about you, but when I think about what Jesus did, taking the stripes, taking the nails, carrying the cross, wearing the crown of thorns, being ridiculed, going on the cross, having nails, piercing his hands and his feet, and suffocating to death for me and going to hell. He didn't die in vain for me. I believe, I accept what he died for, and that was for my forgiveness, my worthiness. I don't say I'm a sinner. I'm not. I'm righteous. I'm worthy. So are you. Receive the identity. Don't receive the lie that you're unworthy. One more point. 
condemnation and unworthiness, if you buy that lie, if that's where your identity is, it's pride. Condemnation and unworthiness keep you focused on yourself. And it's a subtle form of pride. It's a lot more difficult to receive with humility what God did for us when we didn't deserve it than it is to buy the lie of unworthiness. When we receive forgiveness, when we receive the benefits that Jesus died for, the one who gave it is honored. He's not honored when we deny what Jesus did for him by denying our worthiness. He's not honored. So if you want to honor God, believe him. That honors him. Receive from him what he died for. That honors him. So if that's a lie you've been buying, that you've been holding on to, we want to pray with you. I just want you to... to can't, well, you're still taping. I'm just going to speak some things out right now. And I, if, if you're feeling this way, like you've been in this, under this cloud of unworthiness, I want you to very quietly repeat this after me. Say, I let go of the lie. Just repeat it after me. That I'm unworthy. I renounce that lie. I let go of pride. I let go of condemnation and unworthiness. And I choose to honor you, God, by receiving the benefits that Jesus paid the price for. I am worthy. I am worthy. I am worthy of God's love and his forgiveness and his healing. Because I'm his child. It's not because of what I've done. It's not because of what I've earned. It's because of what Jesus has done. And what Jesus has earned. I receive the benefit paid for by Jesus' blood. I am worthy. Amen. 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 Thank you. Kent's going to turn off the video and turn on a worship song. You are worth Jesus dying for you.